Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, and our chat room monitor, Andrea, await you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a terrific chat room with some wonderful folks that join us. So, Ravinder, would you like to tell us all about it? Yes, we have a marvelous chat room at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Actually, last week was a particularly good chat room because we ended up really hashing out this whole idea of what it takes to be happy. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's a really good group. You have, you know, just some really inspiring ideas and great food for thought and it adds, you know, a whole dimension to the radio show itself. So, uh, yeah, it's a fabulous group of people, except that there are some people that aren't in there. So if you're out there and you have the ability to, then, um, do come join us. That is just provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay, in today's spotlight, I'd like to draw your attention to something we discussed two weeks ago on this show. And that's the role of Dharma and Karma in reincarnation theory. As most already know, Karma is all about what the good book refers to as what you sow is what you reap, so-called karma-laden consequences. According to this proposition, one can accumulate both karmic credits and karmic debit during a lifetime. Further, this credit-debit system carries over to future lives, and as such, one may be born into a life of suffering in order to square their karma. Indeed, the Eastern sages inform us, if we were to do something like cut a man's hand off, we may well find that in our next life we are born without a hand, or we lose a hand, or our arm and hand are paralyzed, and so forth, as consequences of karma for our act. Conversely, good karma brings good fortune. Okay, now dharma is all about duty, right action. In the Bhagavad Gita, this is fleshed out between Krishna and Arjuna. By birthright, Arjuna's station in life is as a warrior, and he finds himself in a situation where he must lead an army against friends and family. The struggle begins between two sets of cousins battling over the rule of their kingdom. Now, the Gita is actually presenting us with an allegorical battle between convention and higher duty, order and chaos, individual desire, and an understanding of one's place in the universe. Arjuna seeks advice from Krishna, when faced with an opposing army largely made up of family members, teachers, and friends. Krishna informs Arjuna that it is his duty to fight. Arjuna is torn between his duty as a warrior and his duty to family. Krishna tells Arjuna to focus on what is permanent, not ephemeral, the universe and structure of enduring values, not the lives of warriors. 
Arjuna should fight because fighting is what realizes the eternal value of justice, his duty as a warrior. Now think about that. According to the sages, we choose our lives. So theoretically, in this context, Arjuna chose to be a warrior. Some would say that killing members of your family would bring about great negative karma. But Krishna seems to imply that the greater negative karma would result from ignoring your duty as a warrior. Ponder that for a minute. And let me back up to two weeks ago when I asked Dr. Linda Backman on this show about the relationship between karma and dharma. For those of you who missed the show, Dr. Backman is a licensed psychologist who has spent more than 20 years conducting past life and between life regressions. Now, Dr. Backman informed us that her husband was a warrior, and he had been a general in a past life. As such, the conversation led to this question. Since we choose our lives, our parents, our objectives, our roles, and so forth, her husband must have chosen to be a general. That implies his willingness to lead armies and kill the enemy. So does someone in this position obtain negative karma for killing in the line of duty? Her answer was yes. You cannot kill another without gaining negative karma. I just don't think so. The problem is this. Why would a person choose to have a life that created negative karma if the whole reincarnation bit is about escaping the wheel of rebirth, moksha? When the earliest records of sources of information about theories of reincarnation recite Arjuna-like obligations, I think it becomes clear that the duty of a soldier is to the nation he, she serves, and that may well mean killing. The duty of a police officer is to serve and protect, and that, too, may well mean killing. Sometimes, to save lives, we must take lives. It's that simple. But then, here is the really difficult question. Who determines what's right? Think about that. Two armies meet on the field of battle. Let's just say ISIS and U.S. Special Forces. ISIS is confident that they are doing the work of God and that Americans are infidels, sinful, savage, gluttonous infidels. And that's defined. American troops are equally confident that they are protecting a sacred way of life life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They take the field and many die. To whom is karma attributed? When you really get into these inner areas of metaphysics, it can truly become murky. This one is indeed very murky indeed. Your thoughts on it, Ravinder? You know, it is really murky. This whole subject has really got me trembling through the whole idea of karma and dharma I don't believe that you would choose to come into this world in a way that would give you a bad score on the great scorecard of life Um, that doesn't make any sense to me but the whole issue is is really complicated you know because when you think about karma in in those kinds of terms too you're also kind of implying that those people who 
are doing well in this life right now, who are comfortable and prosperous. and all, Well, they did good things in their prior life. That's why they're so comfortable and fortunate and lucky. But then you have the reverse side. Are you saying that the people uh, who are poor and unfortunate, well, they're just being punished for something they did last? It doesn't quite fit with me, and no, I, Chris, I'm you, not sure. I you just, have to remember that this idea actually you know, gets its greatest strength in a society where caste systems exist. Yep. And so it may well be that it's an ex- it's explanatory power um, is what, you know, what the behind-the-scenes architect is, architecture is all about, um, defining why a caste system and what the, the differences in those classes are. Uh, it's a very complicated issue in my view. It is definitely, you know, where I come down to is, you know, I don't have any of the answers. I don't claim to come close to them. You know, I play around with ideas and theories, but I think the most important thing is to create yourself as the person that you like. And you have to be honest with yourself to say, do I really like this about myself? And and I'm not talking about, you know, someone being overweight and stuff like that. I'm talking about personality, you know, the things that are truly important, the kindness, the compassion, you know, the dedication, the hard work, all all of those things. It's huge. But that's what I work on constantly. You know where I'm concerned, as far as I'm concerned, you know, if there's a duty in life and overall duty, it is service, is to go to the aid of others. You know, that's what it's about. Um, and I, I suppose karma will find find me wherever it finds me, you know, but uh, to me, that's how I define it. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week, our guest was Don Del Vecchio, and we discussed her book, Spirit, Mind, and Money. Lisa wrote, thank you for defining money in the way you did stored energy. I can deal with money in that light, and believe me, I do respect my energy. Lindsay wrote, your show with Don DelVecchio got me to thinking about how much of my life I have wanted more money, but damn those who had it. I can see just how stupid that is now. (laughs) Well, Lindsay, don't be too hard on yourself. You're not alone. Many people still hold ideas like that. They see a successful person with money and assume things about them that are not flattering, to say the least. All you have to do is think back to all the negative slander and lies put out regarding Mitt Romney and his finances to realize just how popular it is to condemn the successful. R.S. wrote, it seems to me that prosperity in our country is all about having more than the other person. Poor people from other countries invariably understand that prosperity is their responsibility, which is why they work so hard. Janet wrote, happiness is prosperity in my book. Mark wrote, I think happiness comes partly from a journey of producing value for ourselves and others. Producing is creating. Okay, moving on. Suzanne wrote, I have enjoyed your work and the results thereof immensely. I am currently working on releasing right now. And a tithe check is made out. Catherine Ponder said in one of her books that a tithe should be made to that which enhances your spirituality and growth. So I am sending this check to all of you as a gift. Do as it with, do as you will with it. Order lunch or whatever. That's very nice of you, Suzanne. 
Shahil wrote, I've heard the Intertalk CDs, and they are amazing to listen to. They are very calming. Joy wrote, Intertalk is great. I have a baby boy, and I'm going to get him started at an early age. Thank you. And Sean wrote, Eldon, I am an artist, lifelong learner. I am a fan of Dr. Nick Baggage, who recommended your mind programming book. I began using the Serenity CD and found it to be a powerful tool. If you are not programming your own mind, then someone else is. Thank you so much for your work and generosity. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon at eldontaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly appreciate your feedbacks and support. Now to this week's show. In the light of death, with Inika. Inika. Thank you. With Inika <laughs> Kodum. You know, and I practice that too. <laughs> what is a good death? Is it as Tolstoy might have us believe a natural process that comes about easily when we have lived fully aware of the inevitability of death? Should we be living as though we were dying, something the poet Walt Whitman so well articulates in his verses? Though our hearts are stout and brave, still like distant drums they're beating, funeral marches to the grave. I will remember my friend, Dr. Karen Wyatt, sharing the story of her mother's death here on this show. For those of you who may have missed that show, Dr. Wyatt informed us that for the last few weeks of her mother's life, she was entirely bedridden. All of her life, she had made it an important part of her daily activities to help someone in some way. Service to humanity was a priority with her, so now bedridden, she worried how she might maintain that activity. Then it occurred to her that she could pray for others, and she initiated a campaign to identify the ill in and out of the hospital so that she could pray for them. She lived out her life as she had lived her life, helping others. Is that a good death? Generally speaking, there are a few elements common to a good life. For example, most believe that we should find peace, spirituality, emotionally and rationally settle things, get our affairs in order. If so, is this something that can be accomplished on the threshold of death? Now, that's something to think about as well. What exactly is the threshold of death? And figuratively speaking, how far does it stretch? I mean, Will we become aware of our imminent death days before we actually pass? And if so, what will that experience be like? Enter today's guest. After a career in business, Inniki Coden arrived in 2000 at a turning point in her life. After a shortened study at the University of Humanistic Studies, she started her own practice for dying and bereavement. Subsequently, she worked as a volunteer and hospice coordinator in Rotterdam. She explored the ideas of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and Christine Longacre and finds it most important, quote, to have the inner self in order, close quote. This is something she keeps working on through meditation, periodic retreats, and inner schooling. Her extensive experience in caring for the dying and their families led to an increasing range of training for volunteers and professionals in terminal health care. Furthermore, since 2010, Inniki is connected to the foundation STEM as healthcare, as a freelance trainer. From 2009 to 2011, Inniki Kodum carried out, on behalf of the eminent neuropsychiatrist Peter Fenwick, research on so-called end-of-life experiences. 
This resulted in the publication of her book, In the Light of Death, Experiences on the Threshold Between Life and Death. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Enneke Kodum. Hi, Evelyn. Hi. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, it's indeed our pleasure. Am I saying your name correctly? Kodum. Kodum. Say it yeah, again. Let me let, let me let me parrot you. I'm pretty good parrot. Say it again. Kodum. 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 Okay. All right. And the Eniki is your first name, right? Yes, right. Okay. See, i got to get that out of the way because I feel real awkward when, you know, I'm saying a person's name. You only have one name. You deserve to have it pronounced correctly, yeah. right? Eniki is okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's not right. Tell me what is right. What is right? Sorry. Sorry. I say... Inaki, if that's not right, what is right? Inaki is right. Inaki. Oh, it is. Okay. Yes, All right. It is. It is. Okay. Yes. Don't worry too much, Eldon. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. All right. Listen, before we get into your work, let's talk about who you are. We like to get three things from all of our guests here. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? So to that end, please tell us about your life as a young person. And maybe, well, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I'm, I'm pretty much a down-to-earth woman, I think. And at the same time, I've been aware of alternate realms from childhood onwards, actually, through a certain experience. But I was born in a, in a small village in the eastern part of a small country, the Netherlands. <laughs> and I grew up with my twin sister and a younger sister. And we had basically a carefree upbringing. And I, I don't remember, and, well, unlike my twin sister, I guess, I never had a calling, a vocation. And after college, I was educated to be a secretary. I thought there are lots of jobs available in this, in this area. And then in my early 30s, I started to study human resource management. And then my career took off. But after a couple of years, I, uh, I thought, well, I realized my job as a training and development manager, my income, my car, and all the fringe benefits I enjoyed at that time didn't have anything to do with who I truly was. And, uh, and then I became aware of a desire to perform service, I guess, true service. And uh, I remember very well, it was, I think it was two, 2001, when the war in Afghanistan started and mm -hmm. the business in the Netherlands deteriorated and probably because we as a company in the telco industry had grown uh, way too, too, too fast. And my, my boss, managing director HR, he was preparing a business war scenario and he added images of war tanks on every slide. And I was shocked. I was shocked by his approach to let the employees know that the company was facing hard times and that, well, approximately 25% of the personnel had to be fired. And I told him he was not going to win this business war with me. And he understood quite well. And he managed to put me on the list of redundant employees. And I'm still grateful for that. I left the company with an amount of money and that enabled me to take off some time 
and started studying at the University of Humanistic Studies. And gradually, I found out where my life was bound to be heading, working with the dying, as you said, as you introduced me. And since 2003, as my own practice for death and bereavement, I volunteered in a hospice. I worked as a hospice coordinator for several years and researched so-called end-of-life experiences on behalf of Peter Fennick. Well, that's basically it, I think. So, when you were young, um, were you raised in a religious family? I mean, did you go to church on Sundays? Did you have a belief in an afterlife? Yes, well, when, when I was a young young girl, we, we went to church every Sunday. But I think from my 12th, uh, yeah, it started from my 12th, I think, my parents uh, uh, stopped going to church. And uh, we, we didn't go, so, but I had this upbringing, yes, so I guess I'm kind of a religious person. So... And, um, yes, that, that's a Christian upbringing, and I did believe, I think so, looking back, that there is kind of an afterlife, yes. So, what was the catalyst? Uh, I mean, you're at a humanistic school. What was the catalyst that made you decide that it was the dying process that you could be, you know, that you wanted to dedicate your career to? Uh, um, well, it started with a, a desire to, to perform service, true service. And at the time, I didn't know exactly what that was. But because I had this, this the time off, this sabbatical, um, I started to study, and, and gradually the, I became aware that true service is, is uh, caring for the dying. Uh, that's what I thought back then. And um, and I just had this, this impulse, this feeling, and I started working in a hospice. I started my own practice, and then things went off. Um, there wasn't exactly one experience or one um, one thing that happened that I that I knew I had to go in that direction, but I, I've never regretted. <laughs> A lot of people uh, have you know misgivings about volunteering in hospices because they think of. Well, I'm going to have to change adult diapers, and uh, you know, what do you tell sobbing loved ones? Did you have any any reservations about it? Did and and when you got into it, were you were you disappointed by you know the difference between what you found and your expectation? Um, no, not at all. I I had my reservations, of course, and I. Uh, I didn't know what to expect exactly because I've never, I was in a business environment and I never was in, in healthcare. So I've never been a nurse. I, my, my sister had, had been a nurse for years. And so it was quite strange to me, all that. But I found out that being in the nearness of the dying, something happens. Then you, you, um, I found out that I learned maybe to go beyond the physical and see the other for what he's really what he really is, and then the physical part dissipates for some reason, and 
and then it's more easy to yes of course to to take care of people and um, um, diapers and 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 you know all, all the uh, the physical parts all the physical which is part of that um, it, it never bothered me and I was amazed that it didn't okay uh, you know there there's a lot of of grief that goes with the passing, uh, and it you know for some people it's really difficult to witness that grief and not take some of it on. Uh, when we come back, we've got a break coming up. I, I'm going to ask you uh, how you avoid taking on the grief of others um, who find the dying process. Uh, Less than spectacular. I love your book, by the way, and I love how you define things in your book, so I will just use that. It is a miracle uh, passing from this life into the next life, but many people don't see it that way. We'll be back in just a minute. We're speaking with Enneke Kodam about her life, work, and book, In the Light of Death. To learn more about Enneke, visit her website at EnnekeKodam.com. Let me spell that for you. I-N-E-K-E-K-O-E-D-A-M. Dot com. Okay, remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Gotcha by Eldon Taylor exposes just how far the reach of propaganda, brainwashing, and public manipulation has advanced. You will learn about the many covert activities designed to marginalize your freedoms and educate you to march in lockstep with the agenda of the so-called elite, including advanced technologies used to subvert resistance. 1984 has arrived and the plutocracy is in charge, and most are totally unaware of just how deep the tentacles reach. They don't want you to have this book. There have been broken deals and even indirect threats designed to stop Gotcha from being published. Set for release in September, you can pre-order it now at the discount price of $19.88 with free freight to anywhere in the world. For details, go to eldentaylor.com forward slash gotcha. Don't wait. Get your copy while you can. That's eldentaylor.com forward slash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Show itself in all this dark and blue. It's the only 
Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Eineke Kodam about her life, work, and book, In the Light of Death. Now, we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music is more important to all of us than most recognize. It can awaken forgotten memories, and it's even restored lost states of consciousness. Coma patients have regained consciousness. Indeed, music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance for many areas, including investigations of aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So on that, we just played Miracle by Isle Delang. Why is this one special to you, Eineke? And how does it instruct us about who you are? Yeah, it's a miracle. And I thought that this is, it really um, reflects what I feel about the dying process. The dying process is a wonderful um, process. It's not only that. You, you Just before the break, you said there's a lot of grief involved. And yes, that, that's true. I don't want to romanticize the process, but it is a miracle. And there is um, there's really meaning to be found in that last um, stage of, of life. And we, if we do respect the dying process, the, the way it takes place, you, you, can, um, you can catch a glimpse of that. And um, that's a miracle, <laughs> indeed. So uh, this isn't really a, a love song between you and your your significant other, then. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. I love the lyrics. It's a beautiful piece of music. All right. Before the break, I suggested to you that I was going to ask you, Inaki, about how you avoid taking on some of the grief. Now, as you get seasoned, that's a different thing. But when you initially begin working. Uh, in a hospice, did you have any difficulty with how am I supposed to handle, you know, this grief? Um, yes, well, you, you ask, how do you avoid that? And I really think you, you, you can't. Sometimes you take take on the grief of other people. Sometimes you don't. And you, 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 can't, you can't choose. But, but what helped me a lot was um, what, what I learned from the dying themselves. And um, meditation is a way to practice that. But what I learned is um, about who, or maybe I should say what, we really are. And in hospices, people are generally considered as spiritual beings. And I learned that 
the more we are able to connect with the spirit that we are, the more identification with our physical body diminish. And, uh, and that, um, not only will our concern for illness and, and, and the fear for, for dying dissipate, but we also begin to look at life from a different perspective. And this is exactly what is helpful in handling grief of others. And, um, you know, dying is a, is a layered process. It's right. um, physical, of course, but it's also mental, emotional, spiritual, and a social process. And, yes, it can be experienced as upsetting, and it is often a struggle for the dying and their loved ones. But if we can stay close to what is happening and what is taking place, then there's really meaning to be found. And um, See, now, not only I... um, we, we don't know exactly what the dying goes through, but sensitive caregivers and also the lost ones recognize the, the essential process in which they are engaged. And that all makes it, um, you know, then you see death and dying from a different perspective, I guess. Okay, now, and the grief as, as well. I think it's also the invitation to um, to grant the, the process to the dying themselves and not take over. It's, it's not our process, you know? It's theirs. Interesting. Now, and you, you I can... guess it's um, meditation and a spiritual way of living, of life, is, is helpful. You can walk into a hospice, Enneke, and, I mean, many people have never been in a hospice, but there there seems to be, you you can have an air of spirituality and specialness, and you can also have in some other part or, you know, in a room, just a lot of anger and pain and why me and accusatory, you know, attitudes and, and so on. How do you balance dealing with the two of them? Oh, how do you balance that? Yeah. It, well, it, it mainly, I think, knowing that it is not my process, I can only be there and I can be as stable as possible for the other and but it is it, it is all part of the dying process you can't skip it there's restlessness there's fear there's anxiety and it all it's all part of the process and if you can accept that that makes it easier to stay um, to stay close to whatever happens okay let me ask you this why do you think so many people are afraid of death or afraid of anticipating death? I mean, afraid to the point or whatever word, if you don't like fear, that they ignore the possibility until it's suddenly banging on their doorstep. You know, they they don't make end-of-life plans. So you, may, you might make a will, but, but the real end-of-life plans, how I reconcile my life, how I make the transition, do I want my loved ones there or not? Many people don't want their loved ones present when they actually pass. They'll send them out of the room when they feel that it's close. So uh, why do you think it is that 
that people defer dealing with this, educating themselves on this? Again, your, your, your last question. I say that. Can you, say, can you repeat that, Alvin? Why? Yeah. Why do? Why do? Why are people afraid of dying? Uh, to the extent that they defer any training about, you know, the whole end of life process. Yes, I think we, we pushed in the Western societies. We, we pushed death and dying away, and well, it starts with aging, aging, illnesses, um, dying. We all push that away, and I think it's a collective. Um, fear of dying. We like to direct and, and or, um, uh, organize our, our lives, and it doesn't fit in our successful lives. And I think it's a collective thing, and we are not used to it anymore. And um, the, the main, well, I think when also, um, when you say how do you uh, go uh, on with, with grief and all the, the different parts of it, it requires to overcome our fear of dying and to, to go beyond our concepts of, of who we are and our belief systems. We can't uh, direct dying. It's an organic process. And that's what yeah, a lot of people in the Western societies are afraid of, I guess. Do you think that we should change that, that we should, for all intent and purposes, prepare people for end-of-life planning? Uh, yes, and, and I, I don't. Mean, I don't mean just wills. I mean we. I, I mean I. I'm one of those people that you know. I agree with Tolstoy. You can't live a full life if you have not looked at its meaning through the lens of death. So, you know, I guess should we be teaching people to assess their life through a lens of death, and would that perhaps change our behavior? Yes. Uh, uh, probably, but I think we are living in a in a in time um, in a time that that people are not willing to do so. Some are, but you are talking about a level uh, of of preparation, and many people uh, don't want that, and they only well, uh, look into their will or look into uh, whether they want a treatment, yes or no, and that also is important. But that's something different from. Inner preparation, spiritual preparation, and not everyone um, uh, uh, likes to do so. And we can't force people, or we can't, you know, uh, it, it, you, you choose that or you don't. And both is fine. But it's not my way because I, I feel that this inner preparation is, um, uh, is beneficial. I think it's it's critically important, and I think if you do live your life through the lens of you know how what am I going to look at this how what, how am I going to feel about this um, you know at the time that I pass has my life been worth anything I think it does kind of change the way we we deal with things in our life. Oh but, yeah. Oh but, sure. Yes. And but, we do see the tendency of people who are facing death that they are they tend. To to um, uh, tie up loose ends, or uh, and that's what they do when they are facing death. But you can't start that much earlier in your life, of course, and have a, a, a real life. 
Don't you think attachment is a large part of the of the issue uh, that comes to I mean letting go when people get close to to death and I'm not you know you know it's coming it's you're not dying in some sudden automobile accident where there's no warning uh, but you know it's coming don't you think it's the idea of letting go of my things uh, my relationships uh, that that causes additional suffering that slows that process in the in the actual dying uh, transition uh, what they what they see is that uh, finishing the uh, well what Elizabeth Kubler-Rosted finishing the unfinished business and doing what you have to do and uh, tying up loose ends and 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 letting go of everything that is um, um, it alleviates the unrest and and it um, and you see that people die in peace and sometimes and and that's what what I call in in my book the final meaning experiences. And these are um, really um, uh, giving uh, peace of mind. And then you see that people uh, die in peace. The, it, it, it seems to me that it's, it's also an organic part of the process of dying. And it's like some sort of a general rehearsal of the life review, I think, of this near-death experience tell us. And, but, there are, and, but we can't force that. But I, there is an... Um, an example in my book, uh, one of our residents, she was an 80-year-old lady, and she had been preparing for death for several days. And, and her husband uh, sat by her bedside and kept talking about his young wife. It, he was adorable. And um, he didn't leave her side, and all of a sudden he called in a panic, and he said, oh, she wants to sit up, she wants to sit up. And he held her tight so that she wouldn't fall over. And um, and she appeared. To, she wanted to write a letter to her granddaughter because she thought she had some unfinished business at her, and she kept saying so. And she wrote this letter, and her husband sat next to her, holding her. And then, well, after she wrote what she felt she had to write, she settled down again, and um, she died in peace that same night. And so. Letting go of all the uh, relationships and everything that, that has been going on in your life is uh, needed while facing death. This is this is one of the examples. There are many more, right. and I right. feel that it is an, uh, an organic part of the process. It happens. It happens. Your preparation training that you mentioned earlier, where you incorporate meditation in your own preparedness, do you teach that to uh, people in a hospice center, both yes. to the loved ones who are attending as well as to those that are facing crossing over? I'm, I'm training the, the the workers in, in uh, the hospice workers and and the uh, terminal healthcare people. And I don't train um, relatives or, or loved ones. Um, I do have a practice for, for bereavement, so then I, I see people. But the training part is, is especially for the, um, for the hospice workers. And yes, meditation is part of that. Yeah. It's, it's all a matter of consciousness to be, am I able to, uh, to be there and
process too much because it is taking place how it should take place. And and why do I want to interfere? Is it my own um, is it my own fear or anxiety or you know or uh, restlessness? And sure. that's that's all, um, yeah part of the of the training of uh, of hospitalists. But you don't teach patients then. Uh, how to meditate, because very often you're going to have someone in a hospice center who's lucid and quite lucid for maybe a couple of weeks. Uh, you don't teach them meditation? No, no, but that, that would be a nice suggestion. But what we did and, and what I do is, is really connecting with the person and some, and not everyone is used to praying or meditating or anything. So we don't want to force that on people. So we, we connect and, and uh, um, to, to the people and what they are used to in their lives. And what we see is that people who have not been practicing their religious support, their religion for years, they all of a sudden have a desire to sing or hum religious songs or to... Uh, to read uh, in the Bible, or and that is also one of the desires on the deathbed, which is also one of the final meaning experiences. It helps people to prepare them for death, but you cannot teach that to people who've never done that in their lives before. I guess. Do you I actually? Do you actually, or have you actually, Enneke, done? Or dealt with many atheists in the hospice? Many, many? I say, have you dealt with any or many atheists in the hospice environment? Atheists. Atheists. Someone who does not believe in God. Oh, atheists. Or an afterlife. Okay. Oh, yes. yes. Yes, for sure. Yes. And then, you, you know, you, you, can't, you can't tell them about an afterlife if they never... Uh, if they are not familiar with that, and some people will reject that or dismiss that, and and then, so we thought you you always need to connect with the people um, themselves, and they have their own inner knowledge, whether they have a religious background or not. So it is also always bringing them to their own inner knowledge, and not bringing something new to, to them. There, there have been correlations drawn from research in hospice centers that suggest a person who has lived a good life, a life of service, helped others, can suffer exactly the same condition as a person who has been selfish and bitter and nasty all their life. But the person who's been selfish will suffer much more pain have you observed that in the hospital uh, center? Yeah, what we have, uh, what I've observed is that people who have um, a lot of unfinished business, um, unsettled business, or a lot of, you know, um, haven't seen their, their 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 kids for a long time, for example, or um, having their family rifts, and that is um, this kind of existential pain. Spiritual suffering is uh, giving much more physical pain as well. 
that is most often um, very hard to deal with. So there is um, uh, it, it, there's, there's a conne- connection between the two. So the more existential pain there is, the more physical suffering. And sometimes it, it's not you, you can uh, try with medic- medication or uh, and, and you can't you can't help them. That's what you, know, you mean, we, I think, with your bio question. Or, yes. You, yes. You know, we like to smooth death over a lot. We like people to think that death is, is, is basically easy once you just kind of get your affairs in place. But uh, that's not always the case. Uh, no, for no, some no. people, death mm-hmm. is very, very hard. Uh, have you seen any correlation between the difference, say, of someone dying who believes in an afterlife and someone dying who does not believe in an afterlife by way of their suffering? No, I, I, I wouldn't be able to tell so because also religious people who believe in an afterlife can believe in such a way that they also have a hard time, a very hard time. So it's not always that believing in an afterlife uh, makes it an easy or comfortable deathbed. Um, so you can't really say. I think it 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 really is a personal a personal thing. Whether people are religious or not, um, dealing with the way they deal with death and dying and preparation is is a very personal thing. I would imagine it wouldn't matter too much whether you believed in an afterlife or this life. If you'd lived what you believed was a good life, a worthy life, and you didn't have those regrets, uh, you'd probably be better off doing that than if you believed in an afterlife, but you had been a miserable SOB and had not lived up to what you believed. you think so? Yes, right. (laughs) Yes. All right. Okay, Enneke, we have another break coming up. When I come back, or when we come back from the break, I I want you to tell us what you think a good life is. Uh, That's where we'll pick it up. All right. If you would like to know more about Enneke Kodam and her delightful book, and it is a great read, In the Light of Death, and I do think we should all be prepared for death, be sure to check it out at Barnes & Noble or Amazon Online. Now, we have a video for you during the break featuring our guest and her book, In the Light of Death. You can view it by joining the chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Elton Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture, and this results in framing and reframing classical positions, thereby causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, 
Elden reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. Set for release in September, you can pre-order now at the discount price of $19.88, with free freight to anywhere in the world. For details, go to eldentaylor.com forward slash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Inaki Kodam about her life, work, and book, In the Light of Death. Now, Inaki, we just played your second musical choice. And in English, the title is I Know That I Love You, performed by Anna Carolina. Why this one? Oh, I love this song. And uh, I, don't, I don't speak Portuguese, but it is, it is about love, and it is about um, that, that right. goes on beyond the boundary. I know that I love you all my life I love you in each parting I will love you hopelessly I know that I will love you who are you in love with Inaki? <laughs> I guess it lies <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful well, it is, isn't it <laughs> it is a beautiful song but you know we tend to have these songs attached to emotional moments and you gave us three important ones what is a good life that's what i told you we were going to ask when we came back so you know define a good life based on what you've observed uh with the patients that you've worked with in passing that's a wonderful question what's a good life there's no, i'd like to to answer that um uh, for me personally, because I think that a good life is a life which is lived in accordance with with who who you are, um, and to me, it, it is uh, in accordance to who I truly am. 
and then it's a good life. So there's no uh, absolute uh, this is good or that this is bad. Um, and to me, living in accordance with who I truly am is the most important thing. And, you know, I told you I'm, I'm quite a down-to-earth woman, but I've always had, um, I've always known about alternate realms and, and dimensions, and that is because of an earlier uh, experience in, in my childhood, I think, but that hasn't been in my mind for years. I grew up and and only when I was an adult and working in a hospice and caring for the dying, re-emerged my sensitivity and me being um, um, re- receptive to otherworldly events. And, and that makes my life good, or maybe I should say rich. So there is not, I think, uh, this is good or this is bad. It's always living the life you're supposed to live, I guess. You heard the setup piece. Uh, about karma and dharma, and a lot of philosophy around dharma, our path, our purpose, if you will, in life. And if I'm understanding you correctly, you're essentially saying that, you know, if we live our lives to the best of our ability to be who we are naturally, to, to live out that path, to have that purpose, to me, I, I guess I think of purpose as service, that 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 really is close as we're going to come to being able to define a good life. Have I got yeah. that right? Yeah, that, that's, yes, as far as I'm concerned. And that is because I had a, a beautiful life until I became uh, uneasy with the life I was living. And I thought, I need to do something else. There's a desire to perform service, true service. And that was really different from the, the, the jobs. I had before, and I made a study of, of service. What is, what is it exactly? And I found out that true service is expressing who you really are and doing what you have to do in life. And that, to me, is a good life. I, I, I totally concur. I think when the plumber comes to your home, if the plumber has come there to help you, if they genuinely are there to do their best, to do service, and, and not just there to take your money and give a doggone about whether or not what they do works, if they really do their best as a plumber or as an attorney, it doesn't matter what your vocation is, you're doing service. Right. Would you find that true? Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. And that is, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, it's a good life. And and also a rich life. To me personally, that is also um, the uh, life is a layered process, uh, as well as dying is a layered process. And it's physical, it's emotional and mental, and having uh, healthy thoughts and emotions is part of a good life. Having a spiritual life is part of that. Being in a physical world also is part of that, because, yeah, I think... Um, being here, <laughs> while we're here, we need to be here, and we have to do what we have to do. So the okay. physical part is, is as, as important as the spiritual part and, and the, um, all the emotions and thoughts um, we have that, yeah, we, we can try to make them healthy, and that makes it also a good life. 
to me. So a good life, we have defined. Show up, do your best at whatever it is that you do in the service of others, okay? Or you, and or of course yourself, because that's what you're doing. That's a good life. Define what's a good death. It's um, probably more or less the same because dying and and death is is part of life. It's nothing. It's it's a transition and it is part of life. And I think that is when we we realize that it's nothing more than just a phase in in our life. So probably when you say what's a, a good death, it is about the same as a good life, I suppose. Well, let's fractionate it a little. I'm, I'm going to be difficult with you. Mm-hmm. A good student uh, gets good grades and studies. So we have phases in our life, and dying is a part of our life, but that transition is also a phase of our life. It's altogether different than the phase we have our first day in school when we're in the playground uh, exploring all of the all of the fun things that we might find in the playground. So, in that phase, Inika, what is a good death? Inclined to say that a good death is um, not going away from it, but really living it. You know, whatever comes across, whatever is needed to pay attention to, um, to do so. I love it. So what you're saying is a good death is living through the death, really living it, just like you would live through a roller coaster ride, really being present, fully present in a loving way, of course. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's, I'm, I'm inclined to say so, because when we don't want to, to, to connect with what, with what is at that very moment, we, um, that makes that we are fearful or um, that we feel anxiety. And the moment we know what is going on and we um, accept that, it makes it easier and um, you can live that and I'm really and, and I, I said that before I, I really don't want to uh, romanticize the, the, the process but I really feel there is there's help and there's care and not only the care around the deathbed uh, but also in the afterlife there, there is care and there, so we can trust and if we can and we can live through that process yeah I would say that's the that that would be a good death. But that's, of course, personal, because there are also people who say a good death, that is that I go tonight to bed and don't get up in the morning. (laughs) Well, maybe maybe that's an easy one, and maybe we would all like that one, just go to sleep, and, you know, uh, I once heard that only the good people get that kind of death, but... You know, if I, I, I don't agree, I think, because I, I'd like to be um, 
uh, lucid and, and, and conscious, and I'm really a bit, um, you know, eager to know what it's like. And dying while asleep, I don't know that I would like that. So would my wife. I don't know. I'm undecided on that. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I had a dream once that pretty well tells me how I'm going to go out, or at least I think that's how I'm going to go out, and I don't think I'm going to get a lot of opportunity to. But who knows? You never know. I do think you have to, you know, it's like everything else in life. If we resist it, it becomes more difficult. It's like pain. You see the pain cycle all the time in a hospice center. And the more you resist it, the more you anticipate it, the greater the resistance, the greater the pain. And so and it just gets greater and greater and greater in that fear cycle. And I think, you know, everything that we do in our life that we resist strongly or in resistance to is much more difficult than when we... Yeah experience it and move in and through it. Um, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with that. I, I feel that accepting and letting go what, what, what doesn't work anymore in that specific space, that, that, is, that is the work to do, and we can practice that throughout our lives. That's also part of the training to hospice workers, um, by the way, um, letting go and, and whatever we don't need anymore. And that that is uh, part of the the well, it's it's kind of um, inner practice and in in uh, an inner practice to 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 prepare for death and that um, that is really important and beneficial in in your own life yeah? while while still alive and kicking. Well, and some people kick when they're not alive. <clears throat> <laughs> But, okay, listen, your book suggests that death appears to be a process, and that's kind of what we've been talking about, not a single event, you know. So there's like a threshold. That's that what we talk about. Please flesh that out for us and provide an example or two, if you will. Yes. You, you, again, I didn't hear you. A uh, Part of it I, I didn't hear. It is, death seems, uh, yeah, it appears to be a process rather than yeah. a single uh, yeah, 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 you know, your book is really clear that dying is a process. It's not a single event. And we have been kind of, you know, we've been speaking about that, alluding to that repeatedly. What I'm asking you is about that threshold. In that process, there's, you know, there is this threshold as we approach the finality, if you will, of our corporal being. And, and and what I'm asking you is flesh out for us what that threshold, what that process is like, and maybe give us an example or two. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. What we, we what we see is the ability of the dying um, uh, going to and coming back from a different reality. Sometimes they are they are gone and they are not responsive, and uh, and then they are they are back with us again, and they they have this ability to to transit. And that is uh, most often in an, in an atmosphere of, of serenity and love and light. And it's, it's sometimes the dying themselves tell us about it. Oh, I, I, I thought I was in a different place. I thought, thought I was in heaven. But not only the dying tell us, we can also, the carers and, and, and loved ones can also um, uh, sense that. And that, that is, um, and when I say, that people are 
preparing for death for several days, then they they, they go uh, to and come back from that different reality. And there are more experiences on the border, on the threshold, and um, most often I report a decision, for example, of passed away relatives who appear to have the express purpose of taking away the dying person. And uh, sometimes they say, no, you have to wait a while. And um, this is all, that's also one of the, uh, that's most reported. And sometimes uh, there are also religious figures. Uh, not that that's only occasionally, but also the experience of radiant light that envelops the dying person and they spread throughout the room. And that is also, again, tangible or, or say that? I mean, is this a, a, a 48 hour or the seven day, two week? How long does this yeah, period yeah. typically last? Hours, days, and sometimes weeks. But we also see that um, really all the elderly, the elderly people uh, who are not ill, but, but um, uh, very uh, of high age, they also are um, able, seem to be able to transit between those realities, so that we see that not only with the dying, but also with the very aged people. But with regard to the dying, we see that in the hours, days before death. Yes. But there's one example of one of our residents who had vivid dreams and visions about her deceased husband, and every morning she woke up, she was so sad because she thought, I wanted to go with him, and uh, and it, it it took another year for her to pass over, to pass on. So sometimes it's it's um, it's it's earlier. It's not only in the days or hours before death, but when it happened, when it when it happened, then as a hospice caregiver, we well you, you should be aware because you know oh it. it won't take long anymore. I, I've heard it said that 
you know, people that spend a lot of time in a hospice, uh, they can come to know when a person's going to pass. They, uh, they may be like the cat in the hospital that, uh, you know, and there are reported stories of a number of animals that do this, but the, the animal knows who's going to die, goes to that bedside, and lays with that person, um, you know, in the middle of the night, and they pass. And so people in that in a hospital may know who's going to pass by the behavior of some mascot animal. Have you found that to be true? Have you worked with people in a hospice that are sensitive to so-and-so is going to pass this evening, and they're right? Mm-hmm. I haven't worked with, with those uh, specific uh, animals, but I know about it. And we had uh, one of our residents... Um, had a, a, a brought a dog to the hospice, and this dog was always on her bed, and it turned out to be rather aggressive towards the hospice staff, and it would go crazy when volunteers tried to, to change the bed, for example. And one day, the dog jumped from the bed into the lap of a volunteer who was keeping watch, and it, it didn't get back on the bed, and the lady died shortly afterwards. And we said afterwards, this was the dog's day of saying farewell. And of course, we know that dogs and cats, cats they are very sensitive. They, they have this um, um, sensitive senses. We know, we know about it. But I know, in, I, I think of a hospice in, in, actually in Los Angeles who's working with um, uh, a cat. And uh, I heard about it, but I've never worked in that way with it. Okay, let me let me ask you this. Um, we've spoken to Raymond Moody, Doctor Raymond Moody, on this show more than one time, uh, and of course he coined the phrase NDE, near death experience. You and I will be talking about that in the next half hour or some. But he has a new fr- a new phrase or term, the SDE, the shared death experience, and I I believe I heard you say that loved ones very often will see the same thing or experience the same thing as the dying person. Did I get that correct? Are you saying that there is a shared death experience that you've observed oh, yes, in the hospice? Yes. There, there are examples in my book. Uh, and, and I had one of my first uh, experiences. Uh, it had a deep, lasting impression on me while working in the hospice. Um, it's also kind of a shared experience. And you, you, you see, or some people see, some hear and some people feel. And um, the resident who was involved in, in my experience was deaf and dumb. And this called already for a very special way of interaction. And this woman was about, she, I think she's always been slight uh, or slight built, but she was just skin and bones and translucent like an angel. And one day, late in the afternoon, I was in her room. Uh, with some of her family while keeping vigil. And this angelic woman had been unresponsive for several days. And suddenly she opened her eyes and looked at her relatives one by one, and then her eyes drifted away and, and focused on some point in the corner. And it seemed physically impossible, but she sat up, she spread her arms wide, and a radiant smile um, came over her, illuminated her, her face. And then she sank back into her pillows and she died. And I witnessed um, not only an unexpected lucid moment, and this, of course, was 
birthdays, she most likely had a departing vision. Wow. And um, we, we don't know that it is whether she encountered a deceased loved one or a religious apparition. We don't know. But what I know was um, Which I felt say? a boundless feeling of it was a tranquility, a, a so peaceful. And I can still, it, it has stayed with me to this day, and I can, can still feel it. It was immensely peaceful. And Incredible. I I've got to cut you off there. <clears throat> We're going to have the computer boot us out. Uh, the book is In the Light of Death, Enneke Kodum. And uh, we'll be right back. Uh, we'll discuss more on this. We're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices. and We're grateful you chose to join us. We'd love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook. And or drop me an email at eldon at eldontaylor.com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show, and that's a great way for you to participate We'll be right back following this short break. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Hi, I'm Elton Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together. So I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. That's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. We've been chatting with Inaki Kodum about her life, work, and book, In the Light of Death. In this half hour, we'll take your calls. So if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook. So I invite you to join me there today. All right, Inaki, we just played your third musical choice, Like an Angel Passing Through My Room, by Anne-Sophie Von Otter with the Benny Anderson Orchestra. Why is this this one? Well, it is. It indicates that there are those different realities, and there are those, you know, those different realms. And I found it just a wonderful piece of of music. 
Beautiful, beautiful lyrics, too. And, and this one, of course, I'm not going to accuse you of, you know, having some secret lover that you're hiding. Because the lyrics are, they do go straight to the point of what your work is all about. Now, I understand you, uh, your phone, you're, you're on a battery phone in the Netherlands. And that's where we were getting that tone code yeah. in the last half hour. You have a dying battery, so you could disappear on us at any minute, right? Yeah, yeah, probably. I'm so sorry. We'll cross our fingers and hope that's not the instance, but I do want to thank you uh, for your willingness to share your work, just in case you check out early on me, all right? Okay, (laughs) We'll hope that you're still here. All right. Here for a while, yes. Mm-hmm. You, you yes, and we were it. talking about a shared experience, and there's a wonderful example in the book about one of the volunteers who told me about her experience. She was sitting um, next to a dying woman, and she was quite close to her, and they kept looking at each other, and um, and then she at, at, at one point she felt... Um, um, they, they kept looking, and they were interlocked with each other, and she said everything at one point. Um, I saw that she, the woman died, but we kept looking at each other, and everything was light, and I was light, and there was blue light all around me, and I was there, and I wasn't, and it it happened probably a short time, but it it, it looked as if it was a very long time, and she she didn't have the words, the exact words to express what she felt. But it was an amazing um, experience to her. And in this light and the blue light she experienced, I think this is also a shared experience with what the dying woman um, went through. And that—that that is that people are so close that they can um, um, experience the same, uh, the same thing. You, and when you experience that, that's clearly the miracle and that's clearly what keeps you dealing with it day in and day out have i got that right mm-hmm. that's that's right and and you know Stafford betty the, the american professor he, he tell he tells this and i i consider myself immensely blessed whenever i experience these phenomena and Stafford betty tells us we should if we don't make the mistake of assuming that people are confused, um, then we are likely to feel some of the excitement they convey. And that is exactly the, the, the miracle part of it. And that is, um, yeah, that is just wonderful. Okay, Inaki, you distinguish in your book between transcended end-of-life experiences and final meaning end-of-life experiences. Please unpack that for us. What do you mean? Well, yes, the, the transcendent, the transpersonal experiences are of a subtle, otherworldly quality. And, and these phenomena not only seem to uh, announce impending death, but can often calm the matter of dying. And uh, these uh, phenomena seem to occur most often. Um, and, uh, that, uh, for example, the visions of departed deceased uh, relatives, um, and the final meaning end-of-life experiences are of a profound meaning in the sense that they seem to prompt the dying person to finish their unfinished business before they die. And, um, 
settling those that unfinished business appears to relieve existential unrest and discomfort and enables the dying to prepare spiritually as death is approaching. And another example of some final meaning uh, experience is, is um, you know, I, I, I said it before, that the desire to hum or sing religious songs or the terminal lucidity that people are um, haven't been responsive for quite some time and then all of a sudden they are lucid and are able to say a, a last farewell. And that is meaningful and, and to not only the dying person, of course, but also for their loved ones. Okay, I, I have to ask you about this, Eniki, because my understanding is it's not altogether uncommon for a person in a hospice to actually die from a technical standpoint. I mean, that's it. Without resuscitation of any kind, however, two, three minutes later, their eyes pop open, and they're back with us. Uh, reporting NDE-like experiences. So, I mean, in, in your experience, have you dealt with this sort of thing? And if so, what have you learned from it? Yeah, well, I can tell you about my my personal experience. Uh, when I was when I was 13 years old, my paternal grandmother died, and uh, I don't believe I had more of a special bond with her than my two sisters. But the night after her funeral, after we had buried her, she chose to visit me, and she sat at the foot of my bed. And back then, this phenomenon was dismissed as some kind of make believe, an imagination. And until I had another encounter with my grandmother, in, in, this time in a, in a dream, I vividly remember this so-called departing vision. And the, the, the second time, uh, the, this encounter with my grandmother was when I just had started to work as a volunteer. And um, the hospice I worked was a home-from-home home hospice. And in the Netherlands, we call that an almost-at-home hospice. And I dreamt that my grandmother had been admitted to our hospice. And um, every time I was on duty, I, I checked on her. And again, it was remarkable how beautiful and young she looked. And one day, she took me on a journey. And in the distance, I became aware of an incredible, beautiful city. A city of gold, a city of, of light. And I was heading towards this scene, this illuminating scene, and, well, actually, I seem to be drawn to it, but then all of a sudden, there was this moment that I had to return, and before I knew it, I was sitting again next to my grandmother in her hospice bed, and to me, this was a very meaningful dream, indicating that my grandmother was almost home, and to my grandmother, almost home meant almost united with God, and this was yeah, it left an indelible imprint. And the, the, um, the experience of um, heading towards this scene or, um, well, drawing to it and also coming back to it, that is one of the uh, experiences the, near, uh, the, the NDEs have as well. When they have had a glimpse of a different reality, it is really difficult to come back. And there are lots of 
other parts in it, the the the, the, the light and um, the the light uh, experience is also one of the aspects in the near death experience. So there there are similarities, and um, and that in fact was um, why Peter Fennick, Peter Fennick, neuropsychiatrist in the UK, yeah. he had uh, been studying near-death experiences for decades before he became intrigued by these end-of-life phenomena. And the reason was an experience by one of his patients. And um, she told that uh, there was a dying woman and her daughter told about her mother. And she said she had seen a light and it was so beautiful. She was going towards it, towards it and it was so peaceful that she had to fight to come back. And um, the next day, she wanted to say goodbye to her mother, and she said, her mother said, oh, don't worry about tomorrow. Uh, I'm not, and you shouldn't either. Promise me. And then the next day, she died, and this daughter thought, yes, she was sad, of course, but she knew her mother had seen something that day, which gave her comfort and peace. So the light and the feeling of peace and catching a glimpse on another reality are all aspects of the NDE and the end-of-life experiences as well. Shared experiences. You know, it sounds like your phone may have restored itself. The universe is... Huh. Well, maybe the phone... We just lost her. Maybe her phone was good just long enough to share that incredible story. Um... I guess, Ravinder, we had a couple of questions in the chat room, but we don't have our guests to handle it. Uh, at this point in time, I think, uh, do you have any remarks you'd like to make about uh, this whole end-of-life process? I think the whole subject matter is really important because uh, end-of-life stuff just isn't discussed very much. We had some people, you know, talking in the chat room about... You know, some, you know, when there are some people who are dying, you know, the friends and family aren't around, you know, at the very end, perhaps because it's been a long drawn out process and they've kind of quit and then everyone turns up for the funeral. But I think there is a great deal of discomfort in the whole idea about dying and I find that really really sad so you know I I do think it's uh, something that's important to talk about I know for me I've got very clear ideas as to how I want to die they were telling me in the chat room I was being a bit of a romantic about it so Um, but you know the choices I would have if I had my perfect death are very different to, you know, what you tend to talk about because you tend to want to go suddenly and in action and something and I'll kill you if you go suddenly (laughs) anywhere. (laughs) But for me, I want to have warning. I want to be aware of it, you know. I would like to, you know, be aware that it's coming so I can say my goodbyes and wrap things up, but also just to be conscious in that process of crossing over. Um, so, yeah, that can be a bit weird, but that is just, you know, how I would prefer it to be. I want to be very, very aware, very conscious. I want to take an active part in my own death. 
But I also think about death even more than that. I can have kind of a morbid personality, I suppose. But I often think about um, all the choices and decisions that I make today. You know, how will I feel about them on my deathbed? Will I be happy about it or won't I? Will I regret it? Um, so I often govern my life according to how I will feel about the particular situation. I think that's, when I'm dying. of course, that's what we were talking about. Enneke agrees with that, so do I. I think that's the best way to live. I mean, if you live that way, you've done as much preparation as you're possibly going to be able to do for end-of-life scenarios. I do think, you know, Mark had a great question out of the chat room that I wanted to ask, but, uh, you know, Enneke's battery lasted long enough to share a miracle story with us, apparently, and that's it. Nevertheless, that question has to do with the surge, the so-called, yeah. you know, reported surge. And in Inaki's book, and again, I'm going to refer you to the book, In the Light of Death, Experiences on the Threshold Between Life and Death, there are a couple of stories where, you know, for example, in one of the stories, a woman is, uh, you know, for all intent and purposes, completely unconscious. She's been in a coma for some period of time. And just before she dies, she suddenly sits up in bed, becomes fully awake. Her loved ones are there, carefully says goodbye to each and every one of them, expresses her love, lays her head back down, and goes. Just like that. Now, that's maybe not as long a surge as what Mark's talking about from Grey's Anatomy, but <laughs> but that is, it is evidence that, you know, maybe... It's important that uh, we recognize there is, in this process, still the ability to orchestrate a level of consciousness that discharges our, our feelings of attachment, that lets everybody know how much we care or how important they've been to us, etc. and so forth. Yet, one of the things that I, you know, troubled me doing research for this show is the number of people who will usher out of the room their loved ones just before they they pass. They'll they'll let a hospice care provider remain, but they'll they'll usher everyone else out of the room. What do you think of that? You know, um, on the surface, that can sound really strange to me. But then as I think about it a little bit more deeply, um, I suppose I, I can understand that too. Because if you reach a point where you're dying and it is just part of the process, everyone is going to go through that, then if you're accepting the process, perhaps you don't want to be surrounded by sad faces. You know, it's it's a joyful time for you. So... I think a part, a part of me could understand that because, I mean, I hope that, I mean, w- when it's time for me to cross over, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not trying to say that I don't want, you know, loved ones around me, but I do want to accept death with joy. So anything that would interfere with that, then, yeah, perhaps, uh, perhaps I could feel the same way. I hadn't thought about that, but that is... Really well, interesting. Sorry, kid, I'm not leaving the room. That's all there is to it. But, you know, another thing that doesn't really get dealt with uh, in end-of-life um, training, 
the number of first responders who their training is all about saving lives, and they're very often, you know, the last person people see or deal with. So they have to adapt to this end-of-life process as well, which is entirely different than the process of... uh, of trying to save the life, trying to resuscitate the person, letting them go and, and helping them and allowing. That's that's a whole convoluted model for them. Uh, how do you think EMTs deal with that? I think they have to become detached from it after a while, you know. I, I, I think you just have to because if you're dealing with it regularly, it can just be too traumatic I think it takes a really special kind of soul to be able to just be there for the dying person and help them help them cross over I really admire you know those people hospice workers what you're talking about you know I think one of the things that uh, we sometimes can be quick to do is assume that it's time for a person to pass over, maybe because of their age or repeated illnesses and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, we can we can maybe be derelict in our responsibility as a result of that. We, well, and I don't mean to imply that you were derelict, but we can also pass our power off to the so-called authority, your father, the story you tell me about your father when he was in the hospital, Will you tell that story? That was, yeah, I was, how old was I then? That was, I was about 24 at the time, and, uh, yeah, I received a phone call, and there was something in the phone call that said I should respond, so I wasn't planning on going home for that okay, weekend. We, we have our guest back. I see her. <laughs> Inaki, it's great to have you back. I'm back. Yeah, hopefully. I, I'm afraid not for long, but I, I hope. I'm, I'm back for now. <laughs> All right. Well, we hope that you've got six more minutes in. Well, not even that long anymore. We've got about three more minutes to the show. Uh, Let me do this. Since there's only three minutes in the show, uh, before I ask you one of the questions that our chat room and and phone calls have given us, I want you to tell everybody about how they can learn more about you, Uh, your website, where they can get your books, your courses, uh, meditation classes, etc., do that first. Okay. Well, yes. Would, would you like to learn more about me and my work? Go to uh, my website, www.inekekudam.com, and I'll spell that for you. I-N-E-K-E-K-O-E-D-A-M.com. An English-speaking uh, 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 language for, for, the, for, for the use of uh, for the people in the USA, for you, when you're interested. And you can contact me. There's a contact form. You can, can contact me for any information or whatever you'd like to share with me, maybe your own experiences. I'm open to that. And do you want to tell them about your blog? I've been a reader of your blog. You've got a couple of them out there at White Crow Books. Do you want to tell them about that? Um, yes, the, my book is, uh, is, is published by White Crow Books in the UK, uh, uh, www.crowbooks.com and uh, I do have a blog but uh, not not, um, uh, very often so sometimes I I write a blog and it's also connected to my own website Um, so please have a look visit inikakudam.com 
Okay. We don't have a lot of time, so I'm just going to ask you for a quick one. <clears throat> Tell me about the butterfly story, and you've got about 70 seconds to do so. From your blog, The Butterfly Story. Oh, I can't. In, oh, in, in a couple of... Okay, let me... Um, that was a beautiful experience. I was uh, seeing a dying man with his family, and I could tell he was really, really ill. And when I met this family, I tried to explain the process and what was going on. And um, the next day, this man was uh, supposed to have um, sedation, palliative sedation. Um, but before that took place that night, just, just after my visit, um, he died and his wife could stay with him because she, she told me, I kept on remembering what you told me. And a couple of uh, weeks later, I, um, she was on my, she, no, a couple of, uh, sometime later, she was on my answering machine. And uh, I didn't know about uh, that he died, and she was on my entry machine asking to call her back. And I, I did. And then she was in the car going to the funeral of her husband. Yeniki, we're out of time. I'm going to tell everybody, yeah. look, this is a great story. Go to whitecrowbooks.com, Yeniki Kodum, and read all about reassuring moments around the time of death. The book, okay. In the Light of Death. I want to thank you, Enneke, for your willingness to share with us. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest again and all of you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.